Hello and welcome back to Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. We're on the Financial Mail digital platform every week and on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms as well. You've got no excuses. Trying to keep track of the policy documents the ANC and its government spew out is almost impossible. It's always been like this. And with the party in particular, they tend to be about the same things and offer the same suggestions. A recent example is agriculture. If you're following it carefully, you would have had to read just in the past week a 74-page agriculture and agro-processing master plan, agriculture minister Tokwe Dede's budget speech, and the agricultural sections are vanishingly small though they be of the ANC uh, policy discussion documents prepared in advance of its June policy conference. To be quite honest, the party paper, almost 190 pages long, takes some fortitude to read, riddled as it is with references to the National Democratic Revolution, and you'll struggle to find much about farming in it. My guest today will have read, though, if not helped write, most of these documents. He's Wandile Sishlobo, a name by now synonymous with agriculture and food production in our country. He's chief economist at the Agricultural Business Chamber of South Africa, AgBiz, the order of finding common ground, land equity, agriculture, a book which I've actually read and which I can only recommend to anybody who wants to understand farming in South Africa. He lectures at the University of Stellenbosch. He's an advisor to the president and the minister of agriculture, and he writes brilliantly in Business Day. Wondela, hi, and thanks for joining me today. I know from the cover that the master plan was facilitated by Mzukizi um, Kobo, uh, but I'm sure you had a hand in it too. Thanks for having me on. Um, indeed, I was uh, facilitated by Mzu, our friend, um, and I did assist uh, in the in the background on the research side of the of the master plan, along with a number of colleagues like BFEP and AMC, Cred, and the others. Yeah. This is, look, this, the highlights that we'll get to, but what stands out for me looking at the agricultural master plan is the sheer complexity of what you're asking the social partners to do. Um, it says at the start, though, that, quote, the success of this plan, this complex plan, depends on the full commitment or relies on the full commitment and active participation of every industry stakeholder. That surely is just asking for trouble. I mean, because nobody's going to be fully committed. Nobody's going to be fully active. Are you, you almost, or the plan is almost setting itself up for failure by requiring such deep and, and, and abiding commitment to something as incredibly complex as what you're proposing. Indeed, the plan requires a lot, uh, full commitment of each, uh, of every social partners. But I think at the back of the mind of many people, there is a bit of appreciation that we might not be able to meet all targets or aspirations in totality. But the key understanding is that if any improvement is made, uh, that makes us to be at a better position than today, it is progress. And I think that's that emphasis where it really comes from to say we need full commitment. But even if you commit to half of what is there, I think we will still make an inch forward. And I think that's why the master plan emphasizes um, that a lot. And it is indeed asking for, for, for a lot. But I think if we are building a sector, we, we do need to have that that sort of commitment and, and ambition. Adela, you've got more experience in government than I have, but uh, the agriculture master plan is one of now many, right? We have master plans covering almost every 
uh, or intending to cover almost every industry imaginable, including one uh, I see in one of the documents I've read for this interview, um, including one for Dacha, which I presume you'll also have a hand in, given the fact that it's an agricultural process. But uh, I wanted just to to just, just read through a brief list of what we're talking about in this master plan. Um, once again, just to, so that people appreciate what it is that you've set out to do. You want to increase food security in South Africa. You want to promote and accelerate sustainable transformation in agriculture and agro-processing. You want to improve access to local and export markets, constant upgrades in the quality of supply to bolster competitiveness, enhance competitiveness and entrepreneurship opportunities through technical innovation, create effective farmer support systems, create decent growing and inclusive employment in addition to improving working conditions and fair wages in the sector, improve safety of the farming community, create a capable state and enabling policy environment, enhance resilience to the effects of climate change. One of the criticisms I constantly have with the ANC is that it cannot choose a priority. It cannot, it doesn't know how to prioritize. Everything to the ANC and to this government is a priority. Surely you just, if you just got one of those right, you would have made a huge stride. Why, why do we not focus more on getting one thing right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you in a, in a sense that those are broad um, and detailed points. But I think the way to view the master plan is almost seeing it as an operational document, uh, which does require a little bit of a detail uh, so that it could be clear which of what what does each social um, uh, what does each social partner get to be responsible for, and I think that detail is on that on, on that perspective. But if I were to summarize to say what would push South Africa's agriculture forward, and and through such an intervention almost achieve a lot of what is written down, which you have just uh, read out now as those points. To my mind. Our biggest problem begins in the network industries, which are outside of the Department of Agriculture and to an extent outside of the DTIC. Uh, that's your road, railway line, ports, water, electricity. If you start resolving those along with the uh, service delivery at the municipality, and you begin releasing some of the state land with long-term tradable leases or title deeds, and all of that comes together, in the process, there could be some private sector investments, there could be some expansion that some of our members, for example, in agribusinesses could begin to do. And in the process of all of those, or the interplay of those interventions, you can see improvement in agricultural production, improvement to an extent in food security, jobs, um, exports, and all of those. So this is almost like a detailed um, uh, view of what could happen if we make big interventions. So in that perspective, perhaps it would have assisted, and it does come out this point in the ANC's uh, latest policy report, where they talk around about one page 142 or 43, where they speak about the network industry interventions. If those could happen and be effective, but we all know the process is long, yeah. I think they would in turn result to those outcomes that you have read out. Yeah, because you, you very kindly showed me some thoughts that you'd written down. Uh, on um, on the ANC policy discussions, but to an extent on 
on the master plan as well. And you do say that the ANC notes, you know, that what's required is a comprehensive, uh, well-maintained infrastructure, including electricity, water, roads, rail, and ports, well-functioning local municipalities with reliable service delivery. That's a 30-year uh, fix uh, for South Africa now, for the for the government as it currently stands. We fix nothing, Wandila. I mean, it's, you know, unfortunately, Durban is being subject to incredibly poor weather and, and difficult conditions at the moment. But there are other parts of the country that are not being, um, you know, taken out by heavy flooding and that, but are just never fixed, you know. If you drive through Iduchwa, mm. you know it well, I'm sure. Uh, in Transkei, I mean, it it simply never improves. It gets dirtier, and and the, and you know the 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 um, the, the uh, alternative route you've got to take through town sometimes to get from one end to the other mm. uh, gets worse and worse. You need a four by four almost. How does that get fixed? You once made an interesting point in a in a paper of yours I read about how these uh, villages or these rural towns were being starved of revenue because because nobody was paying their rates anymore or the properties around them weren't rateable because they were probably tribal land or, or, um, you know, I mean, so if we, if we're solving problems, there's probably one, one or two really big ones that everything else flows from. One of those would be making our do it for a function again or Mkanduli or wherever. Yes. Yes, I mean, you, you, you hit the, the nail on the head uh, there, Peter, because the core thing, which is a major challenge, I mean, you probably read in the Business Times over the weekend, there were comments uh, made by the CEO of Astra about the very same thing to say within the poultry industry, they are experiencing increasing uh, costs of doing business because of the neglect of the municipalities. Uh, you go down to the Eastern Cape, you speak speak with the number of agribusinesses like VKBs and the others that are in the wool industry, which are agribusinesses that while uh, if you compare them with employment in uh, in Johannesburg and elsewhere, they might look like they are relatively small, but the incomes coming out of that, it makes meaningful contribution to people in those communities. All of those are coming under pressure because of the poor service delivery of municipalities. So the, the master plan, uh, unfortunately, as detailed and as ambitious as it is, it hinges a lot on what the municipalities can do, as well as those long-term investments that can be made on fixing roads, uh, fixing the, the ports, and fixing water and electricity. Yeah. Because improving production in one area, a rural area in South Africa, is also has its challenges because, I mean, we are, we are a country where 80% of our actual products or so are transported by road. And the recent rains have even exacerbated uh, the poorly maintained roads in the, in the rural yeah. parts of South Africa. If you were to move along, uh, move away from that, that then would need, um, we make a, a serious investments in infrastructure. So the challenges you, you highlight, I think are the things that we, we're going to find it very difficult when we begin to think about implementing the, this master plan. I have to say, I mean, you know, I was looking at, um, I think it was a report. Uh, I mean, I'm probably not going to find the one. Um, oh, yes, PPC, which is our biggest cement producer, reports at the end of March this year, the following in my inquiry, this is on SENS and the, at the JSE, PPC has yet to experience any meaningful uplift in cement sales from the government's designation 
related to the use of locally produced cement on government projects. So PPC is sitting there waiting now for infrastructure, the infrastructure bill to begin, and it's saying it can't, it actually doesn't, it's not even on the dial. These are some then of, of the challenges, I think, uh, when we move on the master plan, because its interventions are so cross-cutting and they involve things that are in the infrastructure, but also other departments are pulling their part, public works, water, um, and I think that's the complexities that we, we, we are all going to be facing. But I think, uh, Peter, even in addition to, to those infrastructural constraints, the other challenge here is that we discuss and talk about policy in Pretoria. Uh, folks, the national departments, agribusinesses, and, and everyone, but the implementation really happens at a local level, which means that the government departments at a provincial level, they also need to be socialized um, uh, onto this master plan, but and really also tailor their plan uh, to be in line with what we are trying to to achieve here. And I don't know when we move to that process about how receptive they will be, particularly at a municipality level. But some provinces, I would say, to an extent, they they are trying uh, to shape. They are thinking along uh, this, but but it's going to be a difficult and a challenging uh, path when it comes to implementation. Yes. Um, so. Just to come back to the plan, um, the the outcomes that you uh, that you plan by twenty thirty are among them are the following: that you want to achieve thirty two billion in real growth in agriculture value uh, value added, um, maintain eight hundred sixty five thousand primary and two hundred sixty three thousand secondary jobs, mm-hmm. and create seventy two thousand new jobs. Now, I know this is coming from the DTR. I can see it already. Um, to expand the commercial production area by 65,000 hectares of cropland, that's very ambitious, 19,550 of irrigation, and 1.5 million hectares of pasture losing, using what they call um, proactive land acquisition strategy uh, farms and commercial farms. You want to enhance food security and support 303,000 livelihoods and increase the share of black farmers in overall production to 20% by 2030. Now, one of the ways that you plan to do this is an interesting, uh, and I'd like you just to explain it to us, please, an interesting thing called the value chain round table. Um, this is where everybody sits together, I presume, um, and talks about how to do X or Y and sorts out their problems. What's unique about it? Yeah, I, I mean, look, these these interventions, I agree with you, they are ambitious, but I think we must appreciate, Peter, that they, they stem from some of the existing work. Uh, if you recall, for example, 2012, the NDP, National Development Plan, gets published, and if you read from Chapter 6 of it, uh, which was led by Professor Mohamed Karan, uh, and uh, Dr. Vuyo Mahlati, they, they were speaking more about a million jobs, additional jobs in agriculture. They were speaking about expanding agricultural production in the former homelands and, and all of those areas. So this is really a, a, a work that tried to distill some of those ambitions that they had begun to, to, to articulate um, uh, in, in, in that work. But then what makes this different, which is going back to your question of saying this will be done in a value chain approaches, uh, this takes a commodity-specific approach, which is what we, we're trying to do here, to say in South Africa, 
where the commodity corridors if you are looking in the eastern cape for example in Dujua, all the way to Matangigisiki, if you believe that that's the area for livestock uh, and grain then you begin to gather the folks that are working on that area to say okay you are all farming in here these are the value chain interventions that are necessary from an agribusiness perspective who is operating in that area that have an interest in partnership or expanding their businesses. And you gather all of those people around and you begin to look at all the hindrances that are faced by someone who wants to participate there. And you address them in that perspective. And all of those that are poly, broad policy or related, they are addressed in Pretoria. And you go then commodity by commodity. That's the, 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 the difference that this, this new approach begins. But overall, it distills what chapter six had done and try to provide a, a more granular and a, a operational plan of it. But again, to caution, this is not going to come without its challenges, because I think at the end of the day, there is a high chance of us as South Africans to be slightly disappointed as we were disappointed um, in the NDP, because at the time we had expected a million jobs sooner. And um, we have made progress in trying to create uh, the, the, those jobs. But it doesn't feel to people that we have moved um, as closer, as faster as what they would have anticipated. So my hope is that with the master plan, at least some of the commodities will, will be faster. Uh, and I will close this point by saying, still here, a lot hinges on the points that we have, we have talked about, because you will see that infrastructure runs yeah. across Water runs across, export markets runs across, the issues of finances rise up, run, runs across um, in all of these value chains. Yeah. We, we, we'll come to exports in a moment because it's, an, uh, it's something I'm interested in. But one of the problems with the NDP, as you say, they wanted, you know, you were expecting a million jobs. Just the reverse has happened. The NDP saw unemployment falling to 6% um, by 2030. Now, there's no chance in hell of that happening. In, in fact, just the reverse. According to the World Bank numbers I've seen, unemployment will be close to 40% by 2030. And that seems to be unstoppable. You know, I just don't know how we are able to plan in a realistic way and say, well, listen, you know, whatever with the NDP, maybe, you know, is the NDP had this wonderful notion, I remember well, of a capable state. Maybe a way, where, you know, there'd be a way to say, well, look, there are good, some good people in the state. There's no question about it. But they're few and too few and too far between, and they don't have the clout that they need because. They keep on being overtaken by, you know, strange and, and and weird policy. If you look at the ANC documents that they're going to discuss, they're still fighting the National Democratic Revolution, you know, and you're asking sort of, you know, sort of um, sort of trunk-legged farmers all over the place to um, uh, to buy into to buy into something that they can't even they don't have any knowledge of or, or interest in. You 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 do um, talk in the master plan about in a thing called um, um, uh, interventions and opportunities, and I'm very interested in this because it's come up before. Um, but you 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 <laughs> you say, and, and it's a it's, you you set a series of targets, right? That you need to transfer <laughs> um, uh, farms and newly acquired state land to deserving beneficiaries. The state must make available at least forty thousand hectares of state land each year until 2030, in addition to the 700,000 already uh, identified. Um, 
And the minister announces, and there's no way of measuring this. One has to just believe her. But can you? The minister announces in her budget speech that of the 700,000 hectares, 436,563 hectares of the 700,000 hectares have now been allocated. And I'd love to meet somebody who's got a who's got a title to that and says, you know, I've got this. He has my lease or he has my my ownership. Because I don't believe that number. I'm wrong. Is it wrong to be? Is it wrong to be skeptical? No, no, no. I mean, you, you, you are hundred percent correct. But let me let me make a quick point on on, on that because I, I think the reason the minister mentioned a somewhat um, a more progressive number is the fact that that land was yes. not vacant yep. uh, much of it at the time. So what what enabled them to make good progress is the fact they were just verifying in some of the areas although there might have been some few land parcels that they were able to 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 allocate yeah. to, to to new people but the yeah. other additional point I, I would make um in here is, is the fact that as we speak peter this afternoon of the 23rd of may 2022 the state does sit on roughly just over 2 million uh, hectares of land um that is in its books that they can begin to find ways of releasing it to properly identified black beneficiaries. And then if they do that, and in partnerships with some of the agribusinesses, which is where we're coming in, in as far as lending know-how yeah. um, and whatever interventions that could be needed on getting that land into full production. And hopefully do that with either long-term 30-year-plus tradable land leases or title deeds, because what's the point of buying land if you're not as a state, if you're not going to transfer it, then with title deeds to the, to the beneficiaries so they can continue with commercial activity. So exactly. if that could happen, which I think with the land, uh, with the land reform agency that the president and the minister have been talking about, uh, that could be some of the key things that could be done. The ANC in its document um, that came out last yeah. week, it also speaks around those lines. So my hope is that then we can begin to do that, because if we do that, then the ambitions you have read, which you said they come out of the master plan of increasing the overall production of black farmers in agriculture to 20 percent, it could be possible because at this point, the data we have out of the National Agricultural Marketing Council suggests that black farmers in South Africa are producing on average roughly 10% or so of the commercial production of the major commodities. Yeah. So releasing yeah, such problem. land and yeah. following it through with the proper support, I think it could move us um, a bit forward. So the state has a much meaningful role to play in this part in its far as yeah. releasing resources. A, a quicker last point here, Peter, yeah. you, you spoke about the weakening uh, state capability, uh, some bit of um, uh, uh, pessimism that even exists in agribusinesses to an extent, which you are right on that, because that's the sentiment I get when I speak with farmers across South Africa. And it is in that perspective then that we from agribusinesses were coming together to say, let's make this a social combating approach. We know where the state has weakened in its capacity. How do you then begin to rely on the resources and the know-how that comes out of the private sector? But for that to work, there needs to be trust. And that's the thing that it needs to be built and then clear deliverables about who's supposed to do what. I, I want to come back to trust because it's so critical. But there's an interesting bit um, in your interventions and opportunities in the master plan where you talk about, and it's come up in the newspapers recently, about land donations. How is it, what, what is the expectation here, Wandile? Is the, um, 
Uh, you're talking about farmers donating land to tenants or, or just, you know, um, uh, land lying fellow being donated by whoever owns it. How does how does the donation by you call the private sector, foreign countries, faith-based organizations, academic institutions, um, uh, non-governmental organizations, how do, how do they donate land and who do they donate it to and what happens to it? And what's the expectation? Yes, yes. Peter, the land donations idea, you will recall, it uh, actually emanates from the panel that I was part of, the land expert panel on land reform um, and agriculture appointed by the president in 2018 uh, going on into 2019. Right. At the time, our thinking on the idea was coming on the backdrop of many people saying we, we want to contribute into, into accelerating land reform in South Africa, donate pieces of land, the mining companies, the churches, um, and some major farmers that were saying that. But they, the core thing they kept raising was that, but there's no clear policy on how to do it. And some were reluctant on donating land while they're not sure what government will do about that. Will the government hoard it once it's on its books and they wanted to give it to someone that they know that it will be off their books to a certain individual. Yeah. But in addition to that, there was a need to be clear nudges or incentives on to say, if you donate X amount of land, you will be exempted to X, Y, Z going in future. Mm. You will gain certain BE points or mm. whatever so forth or form of instruments that the government will do to entice people. But it cannot just be a bland thing. So the thinking is around that. Where, who will do this and how will the land reach people? The, the hope is that this will be one of the instruments under the land uh, reform agency that will be, will be, will be, will be launched and they will utilize it for accumulating land, but of course use the beneficiary selection criteria policy, which is a new policy to select the right beneficiaries. Sometimes some of the donors will know who they want uh, to benefit uh, from their land. So how you talk about the proper proper person. What does a proper person look like? I mean, who gets land, whether it's donated or whether it comes from the state, whether it's leased or whether it's in our own uh, freehold? By, what, what, who would you, it must be terribly difficult to farm. I can't imagine getting up and running, you know, 2,000 hectares, let alone 10,000 hectares, let alone one hectare um, of planted soil. Um, who is a proper person to farm? Yeah, yeah, Peter, you, you, you're right. I'm, I'm speaking now casual language of saying a proper person, the listener might, might not be a, who's a proper person, but a proper person in this is clearly defined in the beneficiary selection criteria policy. And I mean, you yourself will remember this well that between 1994 up until 2019, the, it was not clear who gets to benefit on land redistribution. It was clear on land tenure, you go as well as um, uh, 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 on, on, on that and restitution, because in restitution, you can claim and say your forefathers owned this, you follow the process. But on redistribution, what happens? Do you get to be a black South African and then just benefit on land reform? Or do you get to be politically uh, connected? What really happens? And um, in the process, there was a lot of literature that came out uh, under Ruth Hall and Tembega kept saying, you know, those that are men and politically related, they get to dominate the list of beneficiaries. And on a backdrop of that, then we then came up with a bit of a clear uh, instrument about how and who gets to benefit on that. And that is well articulated in the land reform beneficiary uh, policy, which is mainly 
they mainly have to be of certain age, women and people with disabilities, skills gets to be considered onto that, level of education gets to be considered onto that, and all of that depends on what that land is for. Is it land to be farmed for industrial use? or for 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 residential purposes and then they will look at that criteria to come up with who the proper person is so the bottom point now is that we do have a clear indication of who is a proper person wandila are we not in danger then of you know allocating um land to people who are going to be sort of small scale farmers for the rest of their lives i mean there seem to be two kinds of farming here you know you drive around sometimes where i live now in the western cape and there are no workers on the farmlands at all. I mean, even grapes are being picked by huge, big machines. Um, um, what can you make money without being a very, very large-scale farmer? Yeah, a, a lot depends on a, on a product that one is, fa- is 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 focused on. But the focus now in South Africa broadly is really the commercialization of black farmers so that, because if you, you're creating a number of small scale farms, then that puts the country in a difficult position that we would never be in the medium term, be able to close the existing duality. So if we wanna increase the share of overall production by black farmers in the commercial case, that does mean then that the focus should be on saying, how do we commercialize um, as many people as we can? But of course, doing that, not at the detriment of smallholder farmers and the medium scale farmers, those can still be supported with certain instruments. But I think we do have to focus on the commercialization um, uh, of farm. And that's where sustainability and what you are referring to, even on the financial strength of the farm would come about. The economies of scale, especially with these rising input costs, uh, gets to be key. You talked earlier on about trust, trust being the sort of the the key to everything here, where you get people with different uh, ambitions and different requirements around the table uh, to to try and make something new. How does that? How does trust work um, in something like agriculture, which has, quite frankly, not the most uh, savoury history um, in the country, but which is obviously we all recognise vital, vital to the country, um, uh, absolutely necessary that black people flood into farming in some way and live fulfilling and and you know and prosperous lives how do you build trust between the parties here building trust peter in south africa's agricultural sector is as you rightly put it uh, important but also very difficult given our history um and as you recall that even after 1994 we began to see a number of farmer associations and farmer groups and to an extent uh, because of our history some tends to also be on a racial based if you look uh, primarily on what the commodity associations are set up so that means now you are dealing with various groupings um, with uh, with the varying interests and, uh, and and hopes so the only way i think where we can be able to build trust is finding out what are the commonalities amongst all of these groupings which i think then the value of things like master plans and the others that take a collective view at a national level with the broad range of compromises made begin to assist us but then trust and credibility yeah. goes hand in hand and that will come through delivery 
over time, the state, for example, in agriculture has lost a lot of credibility because people no longer see the government, uh, provincial government departments delivering at a certain pace that they would like. And I think if they can be able to pick up a few demonstrable points um, from the master plan and the others uh, and try to do that, then we can be able to build trust and a constant communication um, is always important in, in that process. Yeah. One one of the key things here would be that the right people around the table. Are you you know South African farming well? Are, were the right farmers on uh, around this table? Do they have they signed off on it? You know, you talk about everybody needing to put their backs to the wheel and play their part in it, but were the right people there? Absolutely, uh, all the right people were sitting uh, on this one. Uh, black farmers, uh, large predominantly white farmers agribusinesses, uh, government, and all of them signed in on this. The only social partner that did not feel comfortable uh, to an extent was Labour. And hopefully, as we go to the next level, Labour will, will, will sign in. Uh, but, but Peter, like everything, um, social uh, compacts have some level of compromises that gets to be made. If you sit with some farmer in Eastern Cape Free State, they will tell you about what they are not satisfied on. But I, I think we, we tried under Prof. Corbo, Dr. Uh, John Purchase and the others to, to, to come up with a, with a collective view and everyone uh, really participated uh, actively throughout the process. What happens to the, the master plan now? Who looks at it and who says, right, that's going to be law? The, the next step now we're going to phase two um, and phase two is where we, we, we're almost going into the I- implementation. It will not necessarily be law uh, or on, on the master plan, but rather the outcomes of it uh, tends to influence the regulations that the government uh, thinks about. The hope is that we will be able to come up with enough incentives uh, to get all of the partners to participate. Certainly from an agribusiness side, we will do all we can uh, within uh, our, our flexibility uh, to do things that we think are positive for growth of the of the agricultural sector and sustainability of our businesses. So that's where the next phase is, is, is going to be now on implementation. Okay. Very, very last question. The Ukraine, um, wheat and maize uh, um, consumption. How much trouble are we in here? Can we feed ourselves or are we... Are we, you know, are we um, exposed to, you know, the inflation and price increases that are going to have to come uh, to international maize prices generally? Your your column of the past week covers this point uh, brilliantly of saying South Africa is one of the best farmers in the world. Um, uh, who are productive and doing everything uh, by themselves. So we are a country that is self, is, is a net exporter and uh, will be exposed largely through price increases of stable grains uh, through this, but we're not foreseeing any shortages on the South Africa side. And we see inflation just over 6% food price inflation. So we're not in bad shape as a country. That's remarkable. Well, it's a good note to end on, Wandila. Thank you so much for giving up your time. You're a generous uh, as always, and I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for listening. And I'll be back uh, next week. Meanwhile, take care, look after yourselves, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.